Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. Um, you might be in a pensive mood. God may be at work in your heart and all that. I, I want to acknowledge that, but I also want to acknowledge that we are not sitting in this room alone. Uh, I want to ask you, as I often do, just to look to your left and right, see the other humans around you. If they're very far away, scooch over a little so that you're not like completely isolated in this experience and smile as you see each other. I want to thank Pastor Jared for his testimony. I really like that we're going to have more testimony, more of our own people um, getting a chance to get on this mic and just share what God's up to in their lives. I'm not sure if I'm a morning person or a night person. I've been sleeping better lately, but last night the Lord just would not permit me to sleep. I was wrestling with the word. I was just wrestling with my heart, and I think I nodded off around 4.30 a.m., so you got to pray that I won't fall asleep while I'm up here talking. Um, but that is a golden hour, too. I, I don't know if there's a word for that, morning person, night person, a crazy person. But there's something really powerful about the middle of the night, if you're still conscious. Sometimes God meets you in a really powerful way in that weird limbo stage between days. Uh, if you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and it's my joy to serve as lead pastor here at Harvest. And... Uh, Today, I want to give an introduction to a series that we're going to kick off in a couple weeks that'll take us through the whole summer. And this is, believe it or not, it's the first time I'm actually preaching on the Sermon on the Mount as a whole series in 20 years. And so I'm really excited about this. I'm looking forward to preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, I just want to set the table for that series. I want to, by the way, the title of the message is Radical. And that's going to be the title of the series, and I want to just unpack for you what that word means to me. But I want to show you what, what verses I want to preach from this morning. It's at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and in a way it feels a little orphaned off from the rest of the sermon, like I'm not sure why this part is included in there, but I think it's the right place to begin talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And it's Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. And here's what it says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that last verse is very provocative, and I think many of us have heard it, and really wondered, what on earth does that mean? Because it seems important, it seems a little scary. We'll unpack today what I truly believe that that verse means for us. But I want to begin with this word, radical. Because when you hear the word radical, what pictures, what thoughts enter your mind? I actually hear the word radical as radical. I picture the kind of person, a surfer dude saying radical, because I rarely hear older people say radical. Radical is not an old person word, other than I've got a radical rash or, you know, I need some radical ointment. We, we older folks don't use words like radical. And maybe when you think of the word radical, you think of words like extreme. There's a person who doesn't want to live very long. He's no rope, free climbing over a cliff. Maybe you think like extreme. Maybe you think intense. Maybe you think extremely intense. But I think the word radical usually in our culture describes somebody who's borderline insane, who is, 
It's really another way of saying not normal in a cool way. Right? Not normal in a cool way. Very intense, very extreme. And in fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, that is one of the valid definitions of the word radical. But a more technical definition, and one I think we really need to build on, is that the word radical means pertaining to the root of something. Always think radish. A radish is a root. And radical means it's not just a surface issue, but it has to do with the root of a thing. It has to do with the essence, the fundamental essence of a thing, so that radical means it's not just a little cosmetic change, it's a total revolution. In fact, I was even thinking about using this symbol for the, the whole message, but I thought it was a little, a little political. I don't know if you recognize that, but that's Jesus Christ Guevara, I guess. But uh, Jesus was a revolutionary. And his teaching was meant to spark a genuine revolution in the world. And when we think about radical, we shouldn't just be thinking cosmetic intensity, something on the surface that feels like these people are crazy. But you know why people free climb on cliffs? Do you know why people jump off of mountains in squirrel suits and zip past sharp, jagged rocks at 100 miles an hour? It's not because on the surface they're pretending to be brave. It's because somewhere deep down they don't know how to be scared. Something is missing in them. At a fundamental root level, these folks are crazy. They are extremely brave, extremely intense at the root. So what we're trying to learn here is that anything truly radical begins at the depth of a person. It's not a surface thing. You cannot be superficially radical. That's a contradiction in terms. You all know what this is, right? Youth group students, tell me what, what's the technical word for, for this? Cocoon? Okay, what's another word? Chrysalis, thank you. I was starting to lose a little faith in the educational system. Thank you for restoring It's a chrysalis, and we all know that a little caterpillar, or sometimes a big juicy caterpillar, creates this cocoon, this chrysalis, and after a little time, it emerges, and voila, it's a butterfly. And we teach this to our kids, we use this as a symbol of transformation. Here's what you might not know. Some of you who are nerds who listen to podcasts like me know this, but I was truly taken aback when I learned this. That what happens inside the chrysalis is very different than what you might think. I always imagine that a caterpillar eats a bunch of leaves, gets real chunky, goes inside the chrysalis, and then while it's inside, it's just like, and then wings start sprouting out, and basically what you have is a caterpillar that grew wings. That's what I always pictured. Here's what really happens. The first stage in a chrysalis is that the caterpillar secretes tons of enzymes and literally digests its whole body. It stops being anything And if you cut open a chrysalis at the right time, what you'll get is a goopy mess of soupy cellular and biological material. In other words, there's a moment when the the caterpillar ceases to exist and it is nothing but a slurry of cells and then it reconstitutes itself around a genetic blueprint and becomes a butterfly so that you can truly say a caterpillar and a butterfly are not related in that A butterfly is not just a caterpillar with wings. It's a radically different creature. Radically. At the fundamental, essential level, it has become something new. I think that's what radical means. It's not like you grow this fancy pair of wings and say, look at me now, I'm fancy. But it's that somehow deep inside, you melted away and something new took its place. The kind of change Jesus always described is truly radical because it was meant never to be a surface change. It was meant to be change from the inside out. And I want to I just talk about three ways in which this entire sermon is radical for us. I hope that you will remember these points. I hope, and if you're not a note-taker, Either you've got an incredible memory or you really just aren't kind of apathetic. But I want to encourage you, if you are not a note-taker, become one. Because I think often it's in reflecting on what we hear that God does some of the greatest work. 
I get impressed, I get stirred in the moment, but I don't actually grow until I really think about what I've heard, until I begin to apply it into my life. It's one of the reasons I send out the, the, the weekly recap of the message, and if that's good enough for you, that's great. Um, maybe if you don't want to take notes, make sure you read that email. But I want this setting of the table to accompany us through the entire preaching of the series because we'll be in this pretty much through the whole summer. And the first radical aspect of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that he issues a radical call to himself as Jesus the King. In the very early part of Jesus' ministry, he had a very simple message. He just walked around saying these simple words, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's all he said. He just walked around and said, something new is coming. Repent, because God is doing a new thing, and the kingdom of heaven is now upon you. And then it says, shortly after he toured around teaching and preaching this simple message, he began to heal people of every disease, every infirmity. He began to deliver people from demon possession, so that wherever he traveled, and I want you to think about this. If you've had an ailment, a physical affliction that has really worn you down, has weakened you, and the doctors don't know what to do, there's really no easy fix for you, and you've had to live with this for a long time, I want you to think about what a draw it would be if you heard that this great man was touring the villages around you, and everyone he touched became truly better. This thing, this physical handicap, this affliction, and you said, why can't I be free? Imagine having someone touch you, and suddenly your body is restored. Can you imagine? And so I don't fault the crowds for following them around. He was meeting a real need in the world because people were hopeless, and he was starting to give hope. Isn't that one of the great things about our God is in the midst of hopelessness? He actually begins to introduce hope. And so as he went around healing... The Bible records for us that great crowds started to follow him everywhere. I'm sure this got a little annoying. Celebrities can relate to this. Like everywhere he goes, people are milling around and they want something from him. And he didn't get annoyed by the crowds. But there happened to be one occasion where as Jesus saw the crowds everywhere, he was ascending the mountain to teach. But in this particular occasion, he drew the disciples close to himself. And while he addressed all the crowd, this message wasn't really for the crowds. This message was especially for those who already belonged to him. He wasn't teaching how to begin a relationship with him. He was teaching how to have a relationship with him. And that's really relevant for us in the church today because most of us would say we've been Christians for years and years and years, but we also wouldn't necessarily say today is the epitome, the height of the joy I felt in my salvation that I feel very close to God today. And so this is a good message for us to hear because he was aiming this message at people who identified as his people but weren't really clear what that's supposed to look like. So what should it mean that I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist, but what I am is a follower of Jesus? What difference should that make in my life? What benefit will that bring? What responsibility hangs over my head? And what, should, what difference should there be in my life because I follow him? Jesus is saying to those who already belong to him, this whole sermon, it's for you. And if you hear and receive this sermon, you will begin to gain understanding on how I want to actually walk with you every single day. And very early in this message, Jesus makes a crazy claim. I'm surprised he was not murdered on the spot for saying this. This was about as offensive a statement as a religious teacher could have made in Israel. Here's what he said. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So far, so good. No religious teacher should abolish the holy word. But he said, no, no, I didn't come to abolish them. I am their fulfillment. Everything your holy scriptures for 1,300 years try to say to you from God's heart, look at me, I am the final chapter. I'm the missing pages at the end of the book. You guys are always like, I feel like there's supposed to be more. Like every Korean drama I've ever seen, they string you along for 30 weeks and then you're like, that's it? 
That's not an ending. That's terrible. And I think sometimes the Jews felt that way, like, this is exhausting. Yes, we get the rules and all that, but is this it? Is this everything to knowing God? It's 600 rules we cannot break. Dozens of things we cannot eat. Hundreds of things we cannot touch. Is there more to knowing God than this? And what Jesus says is there is so much more. And now that you've seen me, you understand what it was pointing to. That everything you ever thought was holy, all these words you thought were sacred, they all aimed at me. Do you understand that that is a profound statement? Because prior to this, God was very much an invisible, faraway God. Every once in a while, he showed himself, but when he did, he showed himself as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. It's really hard to go, oh, pillar of cloud, I love you. It's frightening. If I saw a pillar of cloud that moved around, I'd be like, that's not normal. I don't feel intimate with that. And then his glory would fill the temple, and it was so intense that if the wrong person in the wrong way walked in, they would keel over dead. You'd have to have a rope tied around their ankle so you could pull the dead guy out if he, if he made a mistake. God, when he showed himself, was so other, so transcendent, we could not wrap our minds around him. Every time even one of his messengers, his angels, showed up to a person, they would look at the angel and go, I'm going to die. I'm terrified to the core. So God was his God. We say, why aren't you more clear to us? Why aren't you nearer to us? Why can't we see you? Why is there no proof of you? And Jesus said, until now, it was hard to think about God. But I've come now. And I am the embodiment of God. That's a massive claim. And he said, from this point forward, everything in your relationship with God reduces to me. Five times throughout this sermon, Jesus says the words, you've heard that it was said. That's what every preacher before and since has had to say, including me. When I talk about God's word, I always reference, I even show you slides. This is what Matthew 5.17 says. I'm not saying it. Matthew 5, God said it in Matthew 5.17. That's the way preachers preach. We reference the word of God as coming from a source outside of ourselves. But five times in the sermon, you know what Jesus says? You've heard that it was said in your holy 1,300-year-old sacred text. Blah, blah, blah. But I tell you. And everyone's like, whoa. That would be like me saying, you know, it says in the Bible, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, you can kill some people. <laughs> well, let's be serious. Some people need to be killed. Now, how many of you would be like, wow, that's awesome. I was waiting for someone to say that. I mean, somebody, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really... I really wish that's how it worked, but you see, I don't have the authority to say anything like that. But Jesus doesn't preach like anyone else. That's why at the end of the sermon, in in chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, people were like, what the heck was that? They're shell-shocked, like nobody preaches like this guy. It's like he wasn't speaking for God, he was speaking as God. That's, I know you grew up in church, most of you, but... That is a crazy thing that happened in history, was that a human being, a blue-collar worker from a backwoods area, stood in front of all the people and said, I am the fulfillment of everything you've been waiting for. From this point forward, it will no longer be about how well you follow the rules. It will be about where you land in your decision about me. Your relationship with God from this point forward will be entirely predicated on your relationship and your decision regarding me. I am God himself. And the ticket to a relationship with God from this day forward will not be through rules and do's and don'ts. It will be through how you decide about me. And what he says is, I've come not just as a savior, but as a king. And that matters a great deal. I used to think, Savior and Lord was Jesus' last name, because in church, everyone said, Jesus, Savior, and Lord. I'm like, that's a weird last name. Savior and Lord is a title. And we love the Savior part, but the Lord part, I'm not sure I made up my mind about the whole Lord business. We're not even British. We don't call anyone my Lord. But that's who he is. And he says, if you want to know me, 
You cannot just take the first part of that. You got to take the whole thing. I did not come just to rescue. I came to rule. One of the theologians I'm coming to appreciate more and more is a, a professor named Scott McKnight. And here's how he, sa- he puts it. I think this is beautiful. He says, the entire Sermon on the Mount drives home one haunting question. Will you follow me? And he's not saying, will you follow me to where the cookies are? He's saying, will you follow me the way you follow a king? Will you recognize that I am who I claim to be? And that if that's true, and you decide that's true, that I am God himself, then your following me won't look like you following something for the goodies. It'll look like you following someone because you belong to them. Because you utterly trust where they're leading you. And you don't compromise, you don't negotiate, you don't argue, but you follow. And the whole sermon is pressing this question, I'm glad you like me, but will you follow me? And that's the question I have for us. This is part of the reason I couldn't sleep last night, was because as I made that slide, it started bothering me. I'm like, man, do I really follow Jesus? I mean, I got a lot of things going for me in that department just in my resume. But in my heart, I'm not any better off than any of you. That's a naked question standing before God. Who do I really follow? Who do I call Lord? See, we're not Christians because we believe Christian things and do Christian deeds. We're Christians because we had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And in faith, we believed him to be God. And we received every good offer of salvation and rescue and forgiveness that he extended And then we took upon ourselves his cross and said, from this day forward, I don't belong to myself anymore. I have a master. I have a king. You lead me, and I follow you. That is what makes us Christians. It's not beliefs and deeds alone, but it is an encounter and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And throughout this series, one of the things I'm going to really ask you to ponder is do I have a relationship with Jesus or do I just go to church? I know which box you check off on the census form. But ask yourself throughout this series, if this is what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus, do I really have one? And if not, you don't have to be depressed. Every week the invitation will be, you can. You can exactly have that kind of relationship with him. He is waiting for that. He has been waiting a long time. I hope that's what happens. Before I run out of time, I want to give you a second radical aspect of this great sermon. And that is he establishes a radical standard for kingdom life. The law of Moses, which Jesus keeps referencing, really had three major components. There was the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. Basically, here's what's right and here's what's wrong, and you can extend this out as far as you like, but this is the basics of it. Our entire constitution is built on this stuff. And then there's a ceremonial law, all the different ways you've got to kill this animal or bring this kind of wheat, even the wave offering. I always thought that was, I just picture a guy going, and then, like, I, I'm not sure. That would be like us taking out a wallet going, here's my offering, and then putting it right back. But there's this, this whole rigorous system of here's exactly how I want you to approach me. Here's how I want to be worshipped. You don't get to just make it up. Every ruler, every king has the right to decide how he will be approached and who will do the approaching. I know Jesus gave us access to God, but that doesn't mean it's a frivolous kind of access. Above all others, we should be respectful and mindful of how we approach this Savior because he has been incredibly good and gracious towards us. And so the ceremonial law still matters. God still has a way he wants to be worshipped and approached. And finally, there's a civic law. It's all the ways we're supposed to treat each other so that a society can be held together, so that communities can form. And so it talks about all the things you're not supposed to do to each other and all the things we are supposed to do for one another. And it's a common misconception 
that if we are Christians, the Old Testament can kind of be thrown away. In fact, I think it's a huge mistake that we we were printing Bibles for decades that just had the New Testament. As if somehow the New Testament and the Old Testament could be ripped apart and one is a separate book from the other. Those two books belong together. Together, over thousands of years, they reveal something important about God's heart for us. And just because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets does not mean that God no longer cares about what we do. And I know that somewhere deep down, though we wouldn't verbalize it, there are a great many Christians who live this way. There's grace, so really, does God care what I say or do? It's just an image on a screen. It's just a syllable, a word. Who cares? God is not sweating the small things. And I say that's a mistake. That would be to mischaracterize the personality and heart of God. He didn't suddenly have a schizophrenic episode in the intertestamental period and go, all that stuff I used to be about, (laughs) I don't know where that was coming from. I'm a whole new guy now. He didn't do that. He is still the same God, but he finished the last chapter of the book. He said, it still matters how we live. It matters a great deal to God that we are holy, that we revere him, that we have a huge level of respect for him, that we're not flippant about our shortcomings and our failures or his loftiness and his greatness. But the reason Jesus says that I haven't come to abolish it But to fulfill it, as he said, the law still speaks for God. There's nothing wrong with it in its content. It is good. It describes much about the heart of God, but it did not go far enough. You see, the law of Moses had everything to do with our hands and our feet and our mouths. It governed the words we would say, the things we would eat, where we would go, what we would do. But it didn't really address the heart. It tried to, but it didn't so that it was possible to believe you were one of the good guys because here was a concrete set of rules that said, this is what makes you a good guy. And I think most of us, if we're honest, we would prefer that, wouldn't we, to a relationship? At some point, don't you want to look over at your spouse or or your parent and you just go, I don't want to have a whole relationship thing. Just tell me what you want from me. Give me a list of six things that matter to you. I'll do them and then get out of my face. Let me watch Netflix, please. That's easier, isn't it? Honey, just tell me what you want. Stop trying to draw me into this whole relationship thing. It's messy. I think we would all prefer it if God just said, do these six things and you are great. But God refuses to do that. He said the law didn't go far enough because all it did was talk about what you do and what you don't do. But it couldn't address the heart so that it, If you wanted to be righteous according to the law, you did it by being vigilant all the time. Another word for being wound really tight and up and nervous constantly. And through self-effort. You had to, I I love what um, Dan Ensing always says, you have to Christian harder. (laughs) Come on, Christian harder. I think that's one of the best phrases ever invented. Christian harder. I think that's what a lot of people did in Israel. And chief among those who were Christianing real hard or Jewing real hard were the Pharisees. If anyone could say according to these rules and these metrics, we get an A, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were leading the pack. And under that system, it was very easy to figure out what the grading system was. What Jesus says then is, if you thought the law was hard to follow, some people have observed that the Sermon on the Mount is like the law of Moses on steroids. If you thought the law was hard, he's just taking it to a whole other level. Because he said, oh, just not hating people is hard enough, right? Not killing people is hard enough. But now you can't even hate them. Just staying faithful to your spouse is hard enough. Now you can't even look longingly at somebody else. At every turn, Jesus takes the standard of the law And he goes, that's not enough. Bam, Emerald Lagasse, bam, take it to another level. Bam, throw a little more spice on it. And each time people are like, this guy's crazy. The law was heavy enough. You're insane. You're saying to us, don't just do the right thing, 
But be the right person. Feel the right things. Be motivated with the right motivations. How do you expect us to do that? Now, Jesus wasn't doing this to frustrate his hearers. He wasn't saying, I'm going to make it incredibly impossible just so you realize how small and pathetic you are. That's how some people interpret it. They're wrong. They're just wrong. I don't mind defending that statement. They're wrong. The reason Jesus kept kicking it up a notch was to say, it's not only hard, it's impossible, but not impossible for God. He was trying to give us a window into the nature of real human transformation. And what he's saying is, it is possible to be truly changed, but not through your own vigilance and self-effort. The only way to be truly changed is to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why in John 3, 5, Jesus said, what's happening? Okay, there we go. In John 3, 5, he said, Very truly I tell you, no one can come under my kingship or enter the kingdom of God unless what? They are born of water and of the Spirit. What he was saying is, my kingdom is a situation in which I rule as king. And you can't enter that apart from my help through the Holy Spirit. You can't get there by yourself. Paul, who is often pitted against Jesus theologically, oh, Jesus said this, but Paul said this, nonsense. They were speaking from the same playbook. And Paul says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy. How? In the Holy Spirit. So what he's describing is this kingdom life of righteousness, of peace with God, of joy in our hearts, that is not possible simply by checking what you eat and drink. It is only possible if you live in the Holy Spirit. Here's an illustration of what this means. How many of you have had to carry another person physically? Everyone, now Jeannie hates this, but every like six months or so, I grab her and go, honey, let me carry you up the stairs. And I do it because, just as a man, I want to know I can still carry my wife. If she fainted or there was a fire and she was like, oh, she swooned, I want to know I could pick up my wife and carry her out. She hates it because she goes, it makes me feel heavy. Don't do that. But I do it anyway, and I know I still got it if I can carry my wife up the stairs of our house. It's getting harder and harder because these knees... No, no, not because she's, come on, stop it. You guys are going to ruin my marriage. My knees aren't what they used to be. But I've noticed something really important because Jeannie, because she doesn't like this, she does not help. And when I pick her up, she just does this thing. She goes, dead weight. <laughs> she lays there. It is almost impossible to carry dead weight. But then when she finally relents and she grabs onto my neck, it's like she loses 50 pounds. I don't know how to describe it. She's the same weight, but when she clings to me, it's so much easier to carry her up the stairs. See, the point is, I'm still doing the carrying, but the part she plays matters a great deal. I think we have this idea that if God is doing the righteousness, if his spirit's at work, I'm just going to bring me there. I don't know. I just, I'm going to sit here until you make me holy. No, neither can you try to Christian harder and make yourself holy. We try as though we really could, but we know theologically that's not possible. And so what we're saying is, I will cling to you and you will carry me. But my clinging matters for a lot. When we receive Jesus and we're born again, his Holy Spirit moves into our being. And he begins to give us a new appetite, a new inner compulsion. Even when we fall flat on our faces and fail, instead of despair, the sign that the Holy Spirit is living in us is that even when we fall flat on our face in failure, God, alive in me through his spirit, says, don't give up, keep pressing on. He gives me a yearning for righteousness, a yearning for God that will not be quenched. That's how we know we're born again is that the Holy Spirit is changing us from within, and we sense it. That there are times when we say, I don't want to be like this anymore. I'm sick of me. I want to be different. I want to be more like him. And that desire, that yearning for better, that's a sign of the Spirit alive in me. 
If you've never experienced that inner working of the Spirit of God, if it's always been for you about trying really hard to Christian harder, the invitation to you throughout the series will be, give up a useless fight. Stop trying to just Christian harder and get there on your own. Ask the Holy Spirit to enter your heart. Ask Jesus to completely own your life. Because only when his Holy Spirit lives in us will our participation in his kingdom be possible. And if you've never felt this internal change of appetite, if all you've ever wanted is money, 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 more, 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 and you hear in church, we're not supposed to live for those things, and you say, well, how? That's all I ever wanted. When you don't sense any internal change, that's a sign that probably the only spirit alive in you is the spirit of you. I believe that when God puts his spirit in us, though we don't always succeed, there is this yearning inside of us that wants to burst out. And if you don't have it, you can. If you've never experienced it, you can. There is no reason to wait another day and just keep trying harder. But you've got to invite him in. You've got to trust him. Are you guys still with me? Are the thoughtful faces, thinking faces, or are you just stunned? What's happening? Are we together? Yes. Amen. Thank you. And it's not against the rules. So once in a while, if your heart is moved, just go, amen. Just say it. Like, <laughs> pretend you're not here but somewhere else and just let it go. Let me give you one last thing. He gives us throughout this sermon a radical, and I mean fundamentally different vision for kingdom community. Community is a big word these days. I think the kind of community most of us are thinking about is found on the TV show The Walking Dead on AMC. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Heath. (laughs) That's my first amen (laughs) for The Walking Dead. Listen, if you watch The Walking Dead and you can stomach the zombies and the gore, what you will discover is a compelling picture of a small group of people with a powerful shared experience who are more connected to each other, more committed to each other than you will ever see anywhere else on TV. I mean, these people are like desperately, deeply connected to each other. When something bad happens to one, they will rally and risk their lives to try to rescue the other. Even if it's a completely stupid sacrifice, there's no way any of us are going to survive. They'll do it. They feel each other's triumphs and each other's pains with such a keen depth And when we watch that, this group of ragged survivors, I could tell you the level of community with one another that they feel, that camaraderie, would make any small group in our church drool. It it pictures what we've all longed for. If I died, would anyone weep for me? If I were struggling, would anyone risk zombies to rescue me? And in that show, we see what human community looks like at its apex. They would. They're not just friends. They are bound together in the soul. There's nothing they wouldn't do for each other. But here's the amazing thing I find about this show. They have attained a higher plane of connectedness than most television shows or books have ever depicted. And they have each other as this big, crazy family, and yet it's not enough. They continue to wander this broken, shattered world of theirs, looking for other communities because they're driven by this hope that instead of just surviving, somehow against all odds, they will be able to slowly rebuild their shattered world. Now maybe a hardcore Walking Dead canonist will say, no, that's not what they're doing. I watch the show, that's what I see. Is that every time they hear a rumor of another village, another community where survivors are good people and they're trying to restore electricity and civilization and the rule of law, they're drawn to it. They say, maybe this will be the place we can settle. Because this is no kind of life in hostile territory, looking over our shoulders. Yes, we have each other, but it's not enough because we have each other in a really jacked up world. And that's just not enough. If what you long for in Christian community through your small group or through your family is just us huddled together against the world, it will not satisfy for very long because the world we're huddled together in is completely a mess. 
It's broken, it's shattered, it's dark, it's full of all kinds of bad things. And yes, you can find the depth of security in a community, but unless we tackle the bigger problem of the world, you will never really find home, even among people you're deeply connected with. Because what God calls us to is not just community as an end unto itself, but he says community in my kingdom will always also be a means to a greater end. I'm not in the business, Jesus is not in the business, he says, of just saving individuals. He is redeeming a people for himself. That doesn't mean individuals don't matter, but one of the songs that's always caused me tension is that one song, praise song, that says, when he's hanging on the cross, that he thought of me above all. Every time we try to sing that song, I'm like, I don't really, I don't think so. I, I have a hard time with that song. That as Jesus hung on the cross, his highest thought was, Dave Lee. Just above everything, Dave, it's for you, buddy. Only you. Above everything else, I just don't buy it. He did love me. He did die for me. He intensely sees and knows me. But this is a big God. And his heart is for the nations. His heart is to redeem a people for himself. And we in America have so grotesquely individualized and privatized our faith that we can't really think of Christianity as something that all of us do together. It's always something that I'm supposed to do by myself. When you listen to our stories of suffering, they're all private, localized suffering. We rarely talk about war and plague and famine and systemic dangers we all face together. We really talk about what's happening in my small section of the aquarium. But I think a day is coming when we won't have that luxury, when greater things will plague all of us. And if we're going to be a transforming community, we first have to be a transformed community. Amen? We cannot change our world and draw the world towards Christ if we ourselves have not been deeply changed. I want you to imagine that a friend came up to you very excited and said, Dude, I just heard this incredible story about this news that people heard. And as they heard it, it was a story of hope. It was a message of rescue, forgiveness, release. And everyone who heard it and received it, their lives are completely changed. It's like people are saying, my husband came home and I didn't even recognize him. Something is going on here, man. This news is not just words. There's power in these words. Something is happening. And when these people who have this powerful experience gather together on a regular basis, their gatherings are wild, man. There's a sense of connectedness and joy that we don't see anywhere in our world. And when they get together, miracles happen. There's a sense of wonder and awe. It's unbelievable. I am so jazzed about meeting these people, hearing this news. And if your friend told you that, how hyped would you be to experience this? What if he said, I found one of their their groups, and I want to take you? Wouldn't you be excited? What if you got in that car, and they pulled up to Hoffman Estates High School at 10 a.m. on Sunday? (laughs) And you walked in here. Now, I'm not saying this to be cruel or judgmental, but I'm just wondering... Would you feel like what we have here on Sunday mornings reflects that picture of a glorious message and a gloriously transformed people? I'm not saying it's far from it, but I'm saying that the vision that Jesus had in his heart for us goes much higher than what we've experienced, and that's good news. I'm glad to think that what we've had as good as it's been is not the height of the mountain. Can you imagine if you got to base camp after spending a hundred grand and someone said, you've done it, you've climbed Everest, and they're like, that's it? What about that big thing up there? I want to go up there. And they're like, no, you're done. Wouldn't that be stinky? But if they said, oh, we're not even, this is just the bottom. When you get to the top, your breath will literally be taken away. That's what we're hearing this morning. That as good as it's been, and I'm going to admit to you, This is the best church I've ever personally experienced. I've traveled six of the seven continents. I've literally visited hundreds of churches. And this is still my all-time favorite. And I'm not just brown-nosing you guys. 
I mean, I love this church. I think what God's given us is special. But the good news is this is not as good as it gets. It gets better. Hebrews 12.2 says that when Jesus faced the horror of the cross, what allowed him to get through that horror was the secret joy which was set before him. I know exactly what that, well, I don't know exactly. I know kind of what that feels like. (laughs) I've never been crucified, so I don't know exactly what that feels like. But I remember in the early years how much it cost us as leaders to establish the foundation of this church. It was not easy. And I'm going to tell you if you came later on, this was not an easy church to birth. Do you know Chris and I are actually 28 years old, but we look like this because laying the foundation of this church, man, those early days, it was all-nighters, one after another. It was sacrificing money and time and energy. It was enduring criticism and attack. It was one thing after another. You know what kept us going was in our hearts, we had a picture of this church. 20 years later, we're beginning to taste all that good fruit, just beginning to taste it. But that's the way it works, is when you have an exceedingly great, joyful vision, it can get you through some hell. And what was the joyful, secret vision that got Jesus through the cross? It was a lot of things, but I know that among that joy was his vision of us as a community. He pictured that as each of us became saved by what he was doing, and we found each other and banded together as a community, together we would do something in his kingdom that would be glorious beyond anything we would do alone. He saw the church, his radiant bride, and that got him through the cross. I'm not just conjecturing here. When you eavesdrop on his last prayer, that tortured prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, magically recorded for us by John 17. One part of the prayer says this, Now I am coming to you, Father. I told them many things while I was with them in the world, so they would be what? Filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. He had a vision of a people who are being deeply changed by God's truth and by his saving work. He could see us at our best. And that vision was beautiful for him. And he says, just as you sent me into the world, I'm going to send them into the world. That's a beautiful vision. And when we think about what this church should be, His great vision should always be more powerful than our desire for this church. Can I just admit, I have a plan for this church. I have desires for our church. I have a vision for our church. But so did Jesus. And his vision for us matters more than mine or yours. And this vision of Jesus for the church, it's not going to be created, realized, simply by programmatic changes. We're going to change the world and advance his kingdom only if his kingdom advances in us. And that comes down to each one of us, one by one, making a very personal decision to follow Jesus with all our hearts. The haunting central question of this whole sermon is this. Will you follow me or will you not? Will you follow me? And I ask you, before we even start the series, what will your answer be? The Sermon on the Mount is not just a message for individuals. It's a message for the people of God. And we need to hear it together as a church, receive it together as a church, and let's enter his kingdom together. I want to invite you to bow with me in prayer. We'll spend just a few minutes praying. It won't be long, but I want to ask you to fully engage in this moment. Which of these radical aspects 
of the Sermon on the Mount do you think will most speak to you over the course of this series? Will it be that Jesus will be beckoning you, inviting you to actually start a real personal relationship with him? Will it be that radical call? Will it be that Jesus says, I, it matters to me and to my Father how you live. Let me in so I can change your life so that your life looks the way it's meant to look. Or is it community? You're yearning for community. And God says to you, I can give that to you, but it's not just for you to find a holy huddle. It's because through my people, my kingdom will also advance. We're going to rebuild a shattered world together as much as we're able. We're not going to leave this place alone. Which of those will God speak to you most over the course of this series? And just pause for a moment. Think about where you are in your journey. Let God speak to you, and then I'll close for us in prayer. pray together. God, we're not left to guess about who you are, to wander in circles, frustrated. You've made it very clear how we can know you. You've shown us who you are and what you're like. And the full essence of who you are resided in our Lord Jesus Christ. So above all other things over the course of this series, give each of us a powerful personal encounter with Jesus. Whether our hands are dirty or clean, whether we know everything or know nothing, let us begin with that encounter with you. Come and visit us. Draw us into such a powerful moment we will say with confidence, I just met Jesus. We long for that. And some of us have never had it. So give us that joy for the first time. Continue to work in our church through this series so that out of this group of people, you will carve for yourself a people over whom you will be king so joyfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.